Well, may we say, God save the Queen, because nothing will save the Governor-General. You know I've searched my heart to prove There's better ways to push and pull Hey, whatever gets you through these days Hello and welcome to Well May We Say, a progressive podcast about Australian politics. This is episode 63 for Friday 7th of September 2018. I'm Jeremy Sear and each week I'll be joined by a different guest host to help me discuss what's just been happening to our country, what's likely to happen very shortly and hopefully what we can do about it. Tonight's guest host is Ginger Valentine. Welcome back. Thank you, Jeremy. It is good to be back. Let's get straight onto it because there are far too many depressing things to cover. People seem to somehow, uh, despite remembering that Morrison was the bastard who claimed to have stopped the boats as if that was A, a good thing and B, something that they'd actually managed to do given that they clearly haven't and they have to admit that their boats are still coming. People claiming that they didn't know who he was. So this week he's made a real effort, a real effort to make sure that people do remember who he is, which is... A, a, a weird, scary crank. Which ones have you been you've, you've been seeing from his his very disturbing week so far, Ginger? Oh, look, my my personal highlight and highlight is is, it, is there a negative like an inverse version of a highlight? But the one that uh, yeah, and a deer, and a deer. Yes, yeah, the opposite of the zenith. Very good. Uh, the nadir of the uh, Morrison week was the the tweet that uh, I've just been delighted by uh, as have a great many of my friends about the whole gender whisperers thing that's the that's the one that's just had me completely lost for any sense of humor or uh, optimism about our replacement pm that the uh, jocular everyday dad uh, could could do anything other than uh, drive us straight back into the culture wars that the liberal party seems to love so this is the daily telegraph running a front page article claiming that teachers are out there pushing kids into becoming transgender kids they, they've, and they've led to a 200% increase in uh, kids saying that they, they are trans. And, but, but, and this 200% increase is like 70 or something. Like it's a very small number. And it's not even clear from the Daily Telegraph article whether that's for the whole for New South Wales or for the whole country. Like they're not actually very big numbers. There's absolutely nothing in there from any... Ex- There's a person who, who is one of these trainers who is talking to teachers who is training them so they can recognize trans kids and support them the daily telegraph version is that there are all these experts who are concerned about this this terrible development the only expert they have is this bloke named whitehall who is a professor of pediatrics at the university of western sydney but if you look at his uh, credentials he's not an expert in gender dysphoria or treating kids with anything like that. he was he's basically been dealing with neonatal sort of pediatric stuff for and he's a person who the acl ships out to countries i think he's been a previously a candidate for fred niles party like he is a he has an agenda he is not exactly representative of the medical uh expertise on the subject and he's their expert that they wheel out and of course as you say uh, scott morrison tweeted the daily telegraph article this is our Prime Minister. Who, by the way, I can't read this because he's blocked me. I don't know what I did to be blocked by the Prime Minister, but apparently <laughs> the Prime Minister cannot deal with reading my tweets so or my comments to him. Uh, so he tweeted, We do not need, quote, gender whisperers in our schools. Let kids be kids. Yeah. Yeah, let kids be kids, except for trans kids. So I've, I've been delighting in that for the last couple of days. That definitely doesn't make me feel deeply unsafe 
in the country that I call home. That that is the Prime Minister claiming that that supporting trans kids is like an attack on them. It's insane. And as um, one of the LGBTI organisations wrote to him, saying, look, can you please talk to some of us? You don't know what you're talking about, and it's really dangerous. And if you sat down and spoke to some of us and found out what it was actually about, perhaps you would say less damaging things, or at least fewer damaging things. Hmm. He's the Prime Minister, but as the Prime Minister, he has done the the equivalent of the angry like sharing of the article on Facebook without having read the article. He's read the headline. I, I don't, like, the, the article is not good. The article is not at all redeemed by reading it. And none of the uh, people quoted in there uh, are either reputable or well represented. But he, he has just done this, like, your uncle on Facebook sort of behavior from the office of the Prime Minister, which, as a number of people have pointed out, he has incredible resources at his disposal that all disprove or at least contest the. Uh, the fact as presented in this article. Imagine a country where the Prime Minister is being informed by the Daily Telegraph that that is his source of information. He has access to the experts. He has access to all manner of credible sources of information, but he is basing his opinions on the Daily Telegraph and promoting that bullshit propaganda. Mm. Even more, basing his opinions on a tweet from the Daily Telegraph, I still have yet to believe that he's actually read the article. He's just decided, I feel very comfortable in assuming, he's read the the 240-character tweet, or 280-character tweet, and jumped to the gender whisperers thing, which, like, there's a lot of problems with this tweet. But what the fuck is a gender whisperer? Where did this come from? Was he watching the Robert Redford film The Horse Whisperer and thought, yes, this is the perfect analogy to draw? Yes, well, because trans kids... Uh, most people can't actually speak to them. There's a special language that you have to speak. And so <laughs> these teachers who are able to talk to trans kids and appreciate their situation, it's like they have magic powers. Mm. They, they can soothe teenagers like me uh, mm. and, and you know speak in calming tones and, and chill us out so that we can function as part of normal society without having to bring up all this gender stuff and, and talk about you know ourselves and how we really are. And we can just fit in the neat little boxes that we're given. I mean, they're trying to suggest that People being supportive of kids who are trans are causing kids to be trans. Mm. As if... Samantha Maiden tweeted, like, does anyone really think that kids can be gender-whispered into changing their gender? I have three children and this is utter bullshit. The very small proportion of communities that do, as in who are trans, have huge rates of youth suicide. This is a dangerously stupid tweet. Yeah. It's it's like the the theory they have about gay people. Well, yeah. It's the same same panic. They've just moved slightly to one side. Well, because there are fewer trans people. Anyone who has a teenager knows that you can't tell them to do anything they don't want to do. You can't coerce them into doing the washing up or taking the the rubbish out, let alone changing their gender identity. It's it's just bonkers. And in the article, Riley, the doctor they spoke with, not the, the crank, the actual person who's dealing with it, pointed out to them, if a school identifies a kid who might be trans, then... They say that they say you must speak. This is what the person's telling the teachers. You must speak to the parents because sometimes the school recognises it and parents haven't said anything. The parents then come and see an expert. Then they go to Westmead Children's Clinic and they see a psychiatrist for a full diagnosis. And it's only if the child is one hundred percent certain and their status is clear that you even they even go down that path. Sometimes it's not even an identity; it's just a preference or something. Mm. So like they're there to rule out kids who aren't actually trans as well. Like and they go through a stringent. That's diagnosis. right. There are very specific processes. Yeah. <laughs> 
but it's also like the thing where they they like to claim that kids as young as four are having gender reassignment surgery, which is just an absolute lie. The only people who are ever having reassignment surgery are much older. In fact, I'm not even sure they're doing it to people who aren't actually adults, but they're certainly much, much older. What they're saying is, like, when they start talking to younger kids who might have gender dysphoria, which probably is a problematic term at this point too, but who are trans, like, they don't... Like, they fudge those together, like, like those four-year-olds are having surgery. It's, it's just a lie. Like, they can't back that up. It's not true. Yeah. That's never happened. No, it's it's absolutely not true. <laughs> no one is going to operate on a four-year-old. They're, they are reticent enough to perform top surgery uh, on, on teenagers because of the, the development and growth that's still happening in their bodies. And obviously, there is the expectation and the need that the child be sufficiently uh, aware of the ramifications of transitioning of, of, of hormonal transition which is the most likely thing that any uh, teenager would come to hormonal transition is still a big deal and so they have to make sure that before that's introduced even as a possibility that the child understands the impact of their decisions because it, a hormonal transition is partially irreversible uh, depending on the like nature and extent of it but they're not even doing that for four-year-olds but okay it is true that if you are the ACL, you can find some people who were thought they were trans, uh, did the transition, and then changed their mind and regret it. Because any kind of medical, um, particularly anything psychiatric or psychological, or to do with a person, like, there, are, it is perfectly possible that you can do a treatment that is seems appropriate, mm-hmm. and then it turns out down the track that the person that, that that they have changed, or that other there are other factors that ultimately turn out to be whether they like any medical procedure can ultimately be the wrong one. Mm. And so, yes, the ACL can find people who are ex-trans who are like, oh, this has ruined my life. But I'm pretty sure you can also find a bunch of ex-Christians who can say that being you know, brought up a Christian <laughs> ruined their bloody life. So, like, you can say, and, and they would have a much more credible line because they weren't necess- they didn't choose it. They were, be- they were forced into it. Yeah, I'll, I'll tell you for free, being, being raised in a Christian household has damaged me a lot more than being trans. Yeah. That's a pretty safe bet. But, I mean, that's not, and that's not the only place where Morrison went, went full-on look let's just let's just culture war this and to hell with the people that, that this harms because hmm. on monday he was talking to alan jones and look i have i hope listeners appreciate this i've been trying to grab the audio of this which has involved me listening to scott morrison talking to alan jones uh i haven't yet found the audio uh so that it also necessitates me continuing to listen to alan jones talking to scott morrison so look these are the sacrifices look if, if anybody is considering you know contributing to the patreon or or feeling like upping their contribution to the patreon like <laughs> keep in mind i may have to listen to alan jones talking to scott morrison to get the actual audio of this if i can i'll drop it in here if i can otherwise i'll just describe it or, or if we actually have a conversation about it, me describing it, you'll get both but like it, i think Sometimes it's important when people like Morrison say this stuff to actually not just be paraphrasing it, but if we can grab the audio, actually grab the audio. So you're like, you know, we're not making it up. This is actually what the Prime Minister actually said. Yeah. And Alan Jones was, he's complaining about a respectful relationships program, which seems to have an idea that trying to teach kids empathy. So imagine if you're in this situation uh, to try and teach kids to appreciate, not, not to be like, in order to have empathy, you must share all the characteristics of this person. It's in order to have empathy, it's a good idea to be able to understand and try to put yourself in the shoes of people who are not like you. But apparently empathy is a really confusing concept for conservatives. Hmm. So Jones asked him whether a high school program aimed at, this is from the Guardian article, uh, aimed at preventing family violence made his skin curl. Describing the Building Respectful Relationships program as a fancy word for safe schools, Jones claimed students were told to role-play students with various sexualities. Just for making your skin curl, um, how old are your daughters? Nine and eleven. Right, 
Um, you're aware, I'm sure, well, you may not be because now as Prime Minister you'd have to be aware, this building respectful relationships, which is a fancy word for the Safe Schools Cup. Does this make your skin curl that there are character cards under this building respectful relationships mm. where young kids in school, girls, Megan, we're told that Megan's 17, she lives in the city and works at a local cafe. She's had 15 sexual partners and describes herself as bisexual. And these girls in class are asked to role model these particular people. Year 9 students are told to role play them. And the teachers are given role playing cards. And Kelly's 14 and she's interested in girls. She's not sure she thinks she might be lesbian. And all this is going on in the classroom. Is that going to happen in classrooms under your prime ministership? Well, it's not happening in the school I send my kids to, no, and that's one of the reasons I, I send them there, and that's but, why I But they're not have, in a public I, school. No, I understand that. They're in, they're in an independent um, Baptist school. Uh, one, one does of that those. stuff make your skin curl? It, well, it, it does, Alan, for this reason. The values I have as a parent, that Jenny and I have as a parent, I mean, they're the value. That's where you get your values from. I don't want the values of, of others being imposed on my children in my school. And I don't think that should be happening in a public school or a private school. And that's why I want to protect you know, the, the religious freedoms of, of uh, independent schools to ensure that they can continue on and providing at least that choice. But when it comes to public schools, as you know, they're run by the state governments. Um, but how about we just have pr state schools that focus on things like learning maths, learning science, well, uh, we learning all English? How do you make that happen? <laughs> So, well, there, there's another example of kids being forced to go through uh, somebody's religious uh, opinions, mm. which they don't necessarily share. Like, I don't believe Morrison's kids have been given a, a choice of which religion they follow no. or which religion they're being indoctrinated with, you know, in their actual educational time. Also, haven't forfend that any, any, uh, Morrison's daughters might be or know someone who is a teenage person who identifies as bisexual. That would be a valuable thing for them to build relationships with their friends, and he is actively denying them that. I don't see how th this is a good thing. Can you imagine? Morrison would say Morrison would say he's, he he knows that his girls aren't bi or or lesbians or anything like that. He knows it. He oh, knows of course it he does. Because you know, I'm sure he has a good relationship with them, and they would have told him. Yep, as, as sure as the sky is blue and the Earth is six thousand years old. Yeah. Well, because no, nothing makes you feel safer in declaring your non-heterosexual um, uh, orientation to your father than him being the kind of person <laughs> who goes on radio and says that bisexuals make his skin curl. Mm. Yeah, I'm sure that's a safe environment to tell your dad you're bi. Yeah, try coming out to that live on air. Actually, that would that would be wonderful. I would I would pay to hear that. But also, I don't want to put any pressure on his children to identify in any particular way other than what they feel, rather unlike what he's doing. It just staggers me, the, the cognitive dissonance to be like, I think that teaching kids to be empathetic to LGBTI people, I mean, it's forcing, forcing this idea down their throats that LGBTI people are people worthy of respect and civil treatment. I don't, look, I don't agree with that as a parent. I don't want to have my, my kids exposed to the idea that LGBTI people are you know, equal citizens and, and so forth. And that's, of course, why uh, after demanding a uh, national vote on the uh, humanity of LGBTI people uh, and my electorate coming back and saying that actually they thought that they were human beings and should be allowed to have you know, equality before the law, I, I, I um, ran out of the parliament and didn't vote on it. Uh, anyway... <laughs> But I love the, 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 the cognitive dissonance of like that, the idea that you can't have, it's, it's just forcing things down their throat, having teachers tell them about LGBTI people. But on the other hand, it's fine for me as a parent to insist that the school forces my religious views down my child's throat. Yeah, there's no connection between the two. The two things are so separate in his mind that it is perfectly reasonable to ex not even expect an explicitly religious school, but to expect school chaplains to go into regular state schools and to talk about religion in that context, taking up precious time in the classroom, which is 
very much at a premium, it's somehow that's a more valuable use of time than empathizing and building relationships with the people around you. What I don't understand really why it should be part of the... What, why are parents right to indoctrinate their children with their preferred religion is something that, that is a right at all. That's anything we should respect. Mm. Why aren't we... It's not like we respect a parent who's like, I just don't believe in maths. I don't think my <laughs> child should learn maths. So I, I just don't want them to be learning any maths at school. Chemistry is of the devil. Yeah, chemistry, that's right. It's witchcraft, I tell you. <laughs> Turning one compound into another compound <laughs> that has different properties. Frankly, it's alchemy. It's Satan behind it. Yes. So, uh, like... Parents insisting that their children be taught one religion uh, and taught that all the others are wrong. Because keep in mind, like it's not they're not being taught like comparative religion. It's not. I would have no problem with with religion being taught in the same way as history is taught. Like it's it's not not like when they teach you history you're like, that you're being taught as you learn about this hideous historical period. We're teaching you to take on the role of and 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 hopefully reproduce in your own lives the general political philosophies of Genghis Khan. <laughs> you know, obviously we learn things without having to have them endorsed. Well, and I certainly think that it's important to have in state schools as well, like religion taught to kids, but not a religion. It's, you know, the fact that I left school after going to a very expensive Anglican school and not really understanding what, I don't don't understand very much of um, Islam. I don't understand very much of Buddhism or Hinduism or like there's huge chunks of of religion that I've sort of gradually tried to piece together as an adult. But how on earth did I graduate from school not understanding these phenomena that are huge in the world, that people I will be coming into contact with during my life, that people who uh, share this planet with us, these are fundamental things to them. But we're only taught, we're we're taught this ridiculous idea that uh, this is what religion is. It's this particular faith that we follow. And then there's not following that religion, which is secularism. And you know, God knows what those other things are, but they are even more wrong. But you're, you're only given this choice. Like, if you're feeling spiritual, well, this is a religion. Not, here are all of the different religions, and here is no religion, and, you know, make your choice. Or even, here, here are the various religions, and here is what they believe, and here are the historical contexts in which they existed, and why they, this idea is interesting and challenging, and let's debate this and discuss this. Yeah. It's, it, there's no room for debate or discussion. It is having been on the receiving end of a state school religious education uh it is purely didactic you are listening and you are told that jesus did x and frankly they told us some uh unsettling and unscientific things but do they teach you what his hindus believe no do they teach you what what buddhists believe and what hindus believe? no not even a little bit which is ridiculous like how are we graduating with like this level of ignorance on something so fundamental as like the world's major religions like it's bonkers particularly when like i grew up in a pretty anglo area but i remember being in year four and having scripture class and i had a friend sitting next to me who was a sikh he was wearing his hair in a turban and he's having to sit through all of this same stuff with a straight face there's no consideration for his needs or his family's choices He's just swept up in the great white wave. But I also object to him being pushed into his parents' religion as well. Like, oh, there's a. <laughs> that, I mean, I don't think it's any better that we have Islamic schools or Jewish schools. Like, I don't like those. Those are the same problem as having Catholic schools and Anglican schools. Like, they, they, they all of them are parents getting to impose their religion on kids, which is why we have a world in which the vast majority of religious people are either share the. It's either the dominant religion of their country and or the religion of their parents. Very few of the world's religious people were presented with all the different religions and picked one. <laughs> yeah. People who are 
claiming that their religion is, is you know, this true path, don't have any faith in its ability to survive in the marketplace of ideas. They clearly recognise that they have to get kids young and get them believing, you know, to hear all of their religion before they're exposed to any other competing religions because if they're exposed to competing ones, you know... Even though I've devoted my life to this religion, I don't really think that it's actually that strong, got that strong a pitch. Hmm. Like, what, what an amazing admission of the weakness of your religion if you don't feel that you can advocate sensibly for it without kids being limited to that and that alone. Yeah, they have to be raised exclusively in that environment without any scope. Like, it's not like we give the people an opportunity to get to 16 and pause and, you know, make a decision in this, like, large ceremony where they pick up the relevant holy book that they want to pursue. Yeah. There's none of that. There is pure indoctrination. And as someone who, again, I went to state schools, but I was raised in a religious household, I'm still struggling to shake off a lot of the Christian ways of thinking, these Protestant mentalities that are deeply embedded in my human brain, uh, that aren't really how I want to behave or how I want to think. But I, I, I'm stuck with this weird notion that there is some old dude in a white robe in the clouds. I can't shake it. It's, it's kind of fucked. So he was in Albury today giving a speech in which he was trying to like claim the mantle of Menzies, which is a bold pitch to young people reminding them of the, of the great the great Menzies that, that we all remember so well. I'm not sure what year he died. He stopped being Prime Minister in the late 60s, but I, I feel... I feel like Morrison's version of uh, liberalism and Menzies, and Menzies was pretty right-wing. Menzies, white Australia policy, he was, uh, but he at least, you know, liked the idea of most people having a house. He liked, the, he th- I mean, the, conserv- the old conservative idea was that it was important for people to have a reasonable chance of getting a house because mm-hmm. actually it's, it makes people more conservative if they have actually, you know, a plot of land and something to lose. They become a bit more <laughs> defiant and angry and fearful about the possibility of losing it. If you're if you're conservative, you should want people to have a have a, a plot of land, something they can lose. Whereas under Morrison, of course, and the Libs, that's gone. So mm. I don't know how much of an heir to Menzies he really is. But did you see that earlier in the week? So, or in fact, this was this week. It was last week on the twenty fifth of August. Someone reported that he was blaming young people for uh, our economic problems. Did you see this one? I missed that one. That's a, that's a that's a good asset. Always always worth a shot blaming the young people for an economy that's been fucked since before they were born. Uh, so the paraphrase is: Young Australians have grown up in a culture of entitlement, and it's going to send the country broke. He thinks that uh, spending on welfare and health is the problem, and we're leading, we're charging towards a trillion dollars worth of public debt. Mm-hmm. Shut up! Don't mention the massive amounts of money I just gave to the rich in tax cuts. He thinks that the great divide in modern Australia is between the taxed and the taxed nots, and he's not talking about companies that don't pay tax. <laughs> this is have you you've seen this this line this. This thing where they take the percentage of people who pay more tax than they receive in benefits from it, and the who are the percentage of the population that is paying more than they receive is going down. Right. Which makes sense because what we've actually been doing is massively increasing the, the gap between the rich and the poor. So yeah, the number of people with the share of the, the greatest share of the country's wealth is shrinking. They're getting much much richer, but the number of the people in that category certainly is getting smaller. And so the number of people who are forced to rely on some kind of measures to keep going is bigger. Hmm. Not to mention a rapidly aging population. Well, there's that. There's also the fact that a, a lot of a lot of large S is going in things like, you know, negative gearing concessions so that you've got all the, the uh, boomers who and Xs who bought property before the boom who got it all negatively geared so they're not paying any tax hmm. but they you know you know the thing where they're like oh well, people are negative gearing you know it's it's being used by poor people on less than eighty thousand a year 
Yeah, no, they're on 80000 or less after they reduced their tax down with the negative gearing. Yes. Their real income was obviously substantially more than 80000 or they wouldn't have been negative gearing it. <laughs> like, if after negative gearing your taxable income is 80000 then before negative gearing your taxable income was a lot bigger. Yeah, that's that's why negative gearing is so popular. For, the, for those who um, are able to buy property. Yes. Yeah, Morrison argued that Australia is on the pathway to economic doom and gloom because, quote, a generation has grown up in an environment where receiving payments from the government is not seen as the reserve of the disadvantaged, but a common and expected component of their income over their entire life cycle. Even though the number of Australians on welfare is actually falling, the number of people getting government benefits is likely to, is decreasing as well, and the fastest growing of area of welfare expenditure is actually the aged pension, as you say. Hmm. But that's that's their classic thing, you know, when you get your tax return letter back. Yes. And it's got assuming you paid this much in tax, so here is a breakdown of this percentage would have gone to welfare, this percentage would have gone to defence, whatever. But they know that when they say the word welfare, people think the unemployed. Yes. So they shove welfare in there and it looks huge. But it's the aged pension. It's not unemployment. So when they say welfare is going up, the aged pension is going up in terms of the number of people using it and the total cost. The figure for the unemployment benefit continues to go down. But they, I mean, they'll, they'll, people have been buying that line that... I'm paying more tax because it's all going to the unemployed. People sitting on their asses. Oh, it's a classic. Which is a lie. Like, it's just to do with it. It's just a cynical fudge of welfare with the unemployed when that's, they're not the people who are the, the bulk of the welfare budget, even close. Not at all. But it's, it's always, it's a very simple, uh, you know, the 12 biscuits on the table and the, the government is, tells the poor person, that person is trying to take your biscuits and then takes yeah. 10. I'm, I'm messing up the analogy, but the thrust of it stands. Oh, well, it's just that you, you've got to... You know, a banker sitting on a giant pile of money with a you know a, a working person next to them, and they're like they're pointing at a refugee like he took it. Yeah, it was him. It was it was the refugees or the poor people or the I don't know someone someone took the government money somehow, actively took it out of the government's pockets, nicked it while we weren't looking. They should give it back. It staggers me that they the um, media are giving the right such a pass in arguing that they're the ones who are there to help the poor, like um, the Sarah Ferguson thing with with. Um, Bannon, which was just horrific. So Steve Bannon, who is now a nothing, like he was Trump's media strategist, but then got kicked out. And the, the crank who was running Breitbart before that. And mm. Sarah Ferguson on Four Corners runs, does this interview with him, which is completely uncritical. He gets to say all of these bonkers things without any... Uh, you know, any retort. Like he was out there saying, oh, you know, look, I, um, if only there was a way um, within capitalism uh, to not have the consequences of business cycles. And you're like, well, yeah, okay. So if only there was a way while I'm squirting water at people for them not to get wet. <laughs> it's, yeah, there is a solution to not have business cycles be able to cause much harm to people. And that is not fucking capitalism. That is um, what the left is advocating for proper balances and support for the poor. Yeah. Um, and he's out there going, well, ordinary workers have, have seen the elites making all this money and, and their wages haven't gone up. And you're like, yes, that's very true. But it's not like fucking Trump's tax cuts for the very rich are going to help them. No. Or destroying or making sure that healthcare is not available for them or like getting rid of regulations that protect them. No, refusing to raise the minimum wage, things like that. No one, no one's doing anything to change that. Also, this is coming from an ex-Goldman Sachs VP, so I feel like it's rather rich for him to talk about the elites and the working class as though he's one of the latter. It's such a con. This idea that, 
yeah, we're, and Morrison does the same thing. He's like, oh, look, it was in the horrifying few moments I spent listening to him talking to Alan Jones. He's like, <laughs> oh, the unions are out there saying they want wages to go up, but, you know, they're talking about taxes going up, by which we mean not giving the rich a tax cut yeah. uh, that you just did and, and cutting a giant hole in the budget. But as if taxes are the reason that wages can't go up, giving more money to the rich will somehow result in higher wages, but it doesn't. Wages, their money doesn't trickle down. No, there is no evidence for this trickle-down bullshit. It's farcical. And it's it's particularly galling that they can identify the problem, which is that ordinary people are doing it tough. Mm. And, you know, Morrison's out there saying, you know, electricity prices are high, which is very true. Yes. And he's got his, his minister for bringing electricity prices down, which is definitely something that needs to happen. But their entire solution is, and the only way to do that is by burning more coal. Yeah, no. Yeah, burning more coal and paying you less to work in, in that uh, coal-powered power station. Uh, and you can continue doing that until you are 67 or 70 now before you can get any kind of benefit from us because that's where we're bleeding money out. That's that's where we're losing all this money to the slackers who are 78 and have two hip replacements. It's so insane. And But they get to spread these bullshit. Like, how many people are aware that even the Liberals' own internal research on the subject show that a higher renewable energy target led to lower prices than a lower one? The renewables are the method for getting energy prices down. It is not burning coal. And the Libs' own research showed that. But where's that called back on? Yeah. You never see it. Like, ugh, just so much nonsense. Anyway, so ScoMo is blaming the young, the people who are screwed and paying a fortune in rent because we can never own a house. And it's, it's all our fault, apparently. And he also thinks that the solution for the drought, uh, he wants people to go out there and pray for rain. Oh, yeah, pray for rain. Yep. Not not do something about climate change structurally, or like build farms in places that aren't arid wastelands. I'm I'm not a farmer. Oh, but the, the other thing is that a lot of the farm support has not been going to the people who need it. It's going to people who who haven't bothered checking what the conditions are going to be for, and haven't bothered being cautious with the you know the crops or the, the stock that they're taking. But there's, none of it goes to things like working people on the farms. It's just going to the owners of the farms. So people who are who, who would be farmhands who would be doing actual labour, who've lost that labour, mm. no support for them. And you've got like country pubs and country restaurants and cafes and things where the staff are being forced to give up all their tips to, um, to farmers who are doing better than they are. Like it, the whole communities are being harmed by the drought, but it's just the people who own the shit, who are the nationals voters who are getting the, you know, the public support. Mm. In addition to all the money that they get from being able to... Like, they have all those things for writing off losses in bad years as well. Like, the whole point... Farmers have this whole mechanism for averaging everything over in terms of what tax they pay and things too. Like, they've got all these other methods that are already in place. And yeah, Barnaby Joyce wandering around saying what we need to do is take more out of the the water system because the cotton growers have already taken the rest of it. And let's just burn more coal and, and that, that'll solve Oh, Morrison going around to all the regions that are drought affected saying, I don't want to talk about climate change. It's got nothing to do with it. Yeah. Yeah. This, this big drought in winter probably does have something to do with climate change. Mm. Yeah. I feel like I feel like there's a connection. I'm not a scientist. But I trust scientists who say it is climate change. So we can end on the Mark Latham thing. But we've got two politicians kind of caught doing dodgy things and with really weird defences. And they're, they're Peter Dutton, the back in back in charge of Border Force, and Matthew Guy, uh, the uh, state opposition leader in Victoria. Mm. 
so Dutton is now in a war with uh, Roman Quadvleg from uh, the former Australian Border Force Commissioner about the au pairs. But the thing that hit me most about this story this week, uh, apart from Peter Dutton arguably misleading Parliament by claiming that he didn't know uh, the people who were asking for the au pairs uh, and then the evidence uh, that he actually did. Mm. But the bit that hit me was that he came out said he was gobsmacked at the hypocrisy of Greens and Labour who have questioned his use of his powers, saying he had a list of Labour MPs who've asked for help in visa cases. Which is a weird defence because, okay, A, there's nothing wrong with MPs asking the minister to be more compassionate to a constituent. That is one of the things they're meant to do. Yeah. B, it's not hypocrisy when, I mean, it's slightly more hypocrisy from Labour than it would be from the Greens. The Greens' position on immigration in relation to the refugees and so forth is let them come here, be compassionate and humane to refugees. So them saying, please also be compassionate and, re- and uh, humane to another person who's seeking a visa is entirely consistent with their general principle of compassion in, in determining visas. Yeah, it's on brand. The reason why it's hypocrisy in the case of Peter Dutton is because he's a monster to the refugees, but suddenly when one of his mates rings up or a Liberal Party donor rings up, suddenly they, the visa is available. <laughs> like, that's where the contrast is. Um, and obviously Labor is also quite cruel to refugees, so there's a little bit of a, of a um, contrast there. But this is an example of Labor having given a visa do- in a dodgy fashion. They just asked the minister and made an argument, which is what they're supposed to do. Hmm. They've advocated for their constituents, as you say. So that's all weird. But isn't the weirdest thing... That what Dutton is saying is, I believe that they've done they've done something chunky. This is embarrassing for them. They've done something that, that they should be ashamed of, uh, and I'm aware of it as the minister. But I've been covering it up, hoping to use it to defend myself at some point in the future. I'm aware of wrongdoing. Yeah, I've kept a list. And if you keep asking me about my wrongdoing, I'll expose this wrongdoing. Otherwise, I'm happy to keep it quiet. Like, what? What is that? Yeah, that sounds, that sounds like a very Dutton aspect, uh, attitude to the world. What a, what a weird defence. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I'm already... You, you think I'm doing the wrong thing? I'm already covering up for other people who have done the wrong thing. <laughs> That's not as good a defence as you think it is. But not, even, not even people who've done the wrong thing. Like, even in this warped perspective, this is only people asking for him to intervene. Yeah. Not them actively intervening. No no, no action has taken been taken here. Even if he had, like, some kind of record of, of Labour when they were in power doing this, then why hasn't he already exposed it? Like, why is he covering it up now? The idea of... If there's something wrong, holding on to it for use later is shonky. At, at, at the very best, it's a, a grown-up parliamentary Hansard-recorded version of everyone else is doing it. The, the argument that you make to your parents right before they ask you, would you if everyone jumped off the bridge, would you do it too? It's so weird. It's such a weird thing to say. Yeah, no, I've got all this other stuff, but uh, I've been sitting on it. But simultaneously, the Victorian government has done something a little similar in the sense that now, and I, I don't know why they've waited this far in, because this is about a 2011 decision that, that Matthew Guy made when he was a planning minister. And when did Daniel Andrews win government? He's been there for a number of years. But anyway, they've suddenly released 80,000 pages of documents. They've tabled them in Parliament and posted them online. Now, the story is about that Matthew Guy basically did a slightly dodgy rezone which seemed to be for the benefit of some friends of the Liberal Party and donors to the Liberal Party. And then there was a lot of local um, opposition to it, and so then he reneged on it. And then the developer sued, and um, even though the government lawyers were saying, look, if you want to get out of this, the most you should be paying is like $300,000, he ordered a $2.5 million settlement, 
uh, in order to avoid damaging his career. And he speci- the documents that the government have re- released include him saying, look, I can't possibly win this political argument. So basically, to save himself from a political headache because of his dodgy behaviour, he made the Victorian taxpayers pay th- um, $2.5 million dollars 10 times as much as his lawyers, more than 10 times as much as his lawyers were saying the government would have to pay if they lost or should be paying in a settlement. So he just used our, our taxpayer money as a embarrassment-saving device for himself. Like, that's pretty shonky. Hmm. Weirdly enough, the Herald Sun, which have been doing everything in their power to try and get Matthew Kai over the line in the next election, weren't very interested in the revelations about Matthew Kai's uh, dodgy behaviour. But they are extremely interested in the fact that it turns out that within the 80,000 pages of documents, there are some details. It releases some material about with people's private information. Uh, there's a lawyer whose private address is in there. So basically the government's released this huge trove and there's stuff in there which potentially violates some people's privacy. And that is serious. Uh, I also think it was serious when... The federal liberals released uh, that, what was her name? The, the, the woman who'd made a complaint about the way that uh, Centrelink had treated her and then the government, in order to punish her, uh, revealed her medical information. Yes, I happen to know that person. <laughs> Weirdly enough, that wasn't a thing that really bothered the Herald Sun at the time. But anyway, they're very, they're, they've found an angle. Mm. And so uh, the, the headline in the uh, Herald Sun today was, I can only imagine it's a balanced and nuanced take uh, on the subject coming from the Herald Sun. Exclusive Premier's Docs fiasco. Dan's wicked leaks. Mum's personal health and financial details revealed in Labor's document dump. They they found a way to describe a a lawyer in a way that their readers will take as uh, sympathetically because she's a mum. I was going to say a mum. Every every mum is sympathetic. Yeah, mum's personal health. (laughs) Other than a lawyer involved in some kind of lobbying for for a planning permit or something. I'm not quite sure why she's in the in the papers, but I doubt she's in there because she's a mum. Mm. She'll be in there because of some kind of planning deal. Now, I don't really know why the ALP didn't release just the documents that were connected with guys. The most compelling ones first. Like, just... Mm. The media aren't going to go through 80... Well, apparently, the Liberal Party has gone through 80,000 pages to try and find some way of attacking it and, and then just sort of leaked it to their old son, hence the, the exclusive. But... I don't know why Labor didn't just have release a couple of documents at a time, setting and drag it out, have the whole revelations come out bit by bit. Let let Matthew Guy hang himself. Don't I don't know why they decided to do it in in a giant dump that they would have been lucky to get people to read in the first place. Mm. I I, don't, I can't imagine reading anything that's eighty thousand pages long. I can barely imagine eighty thousand pages of government documents. I pity the poor intern who got to siphon through those for the most vaguely incriminating material. I I don't know why they did it that way. It just seem it seems like they could have dragged it out and not had this problem. Although it also seems like it was actually uh, the parliament ordered it, and so then they just had to release all the documents. But then governments don't. Governments can argue about not releasing those sorts of things. Which uh, the the Libs' original argument was how how lowbrow it was and how rude to release all this this information. But frankly, if a government finds out that the previous government was paying off millions of dollars to protect themselves politically, I feel like that's the sort of thing that should be exposed. They shouldn't just like get the oh well, you know, you've lost now. You're, mm. you're we're in government, and and look, it's it's poor sportsmanship to to throw back the evil things that you did at the time, even though you're still in politics and want to be premier. Mm. Like we should just 
let that let and even though like the fact that you are leader of the opposition and campaigning to be premier is based on that you previously held that role not to mention the fact that hypothetically were Matthew Guy to end up uh, as, as the premier he would inevitably blame any number of infrastructure woes and spending nightmares on the Labour government it is par for the course to blame previous administrations and attack their their behavior this seems like a perfectly reasonable and uh, arguably in the public interest action I did like the it being run back by people on the Herald Sun articles. Like, uh, oh, well, this is just more. Uh, how dare Daniel Andrews have a go at Matthew Guy for wasting money when Daniel Andrews came in and wasted the billion dollars on East Westlink? Are you like, oh, oh yeah, to cancel that. <laughs> oh, oh, don't you? Okay, yeah. First of all, not a billion dollars because most of that is was purchasing properties that are still owned by the government and worth more. Yeah. So, frankly, they haven't really lost anything. Actually, uh, if they, it, it's probably been a brilliant investment for them. <laughs> Just buy a whole lot of land cheaply and then watch it go up in price. But secondly, the penalties that were paid were because the Liberals did it, shoved that poison pill shit in at the, just before the election, knowing that the Andrews campaign had promised to... Like, it was an election issue. They promised to cancel it. So they just signed up a bunch of poison clauses in there to punish Victorians for kicking them out. Like, don't you fucking throw that back at me. Yeah, they, they strapped a hand grenade to their chest and blamed, blamed the voters for pulling the pin. That's just mad. Like, that is... That, I am angry that they did that shit. And for them to be running that... For Conservatives to run that as a, oh, my goodness, look at the evil shit that the Labour Party does. No! No! That is exactly the opposite. That is the argument of the evil shit you do. That is, that is not what you are saying it is. At the, in the slightest. All right, let, let's let's end with the Mark Latham thing because this is hilarious. So, just as we mean, yeah, this is a very good, light, funny note to end on. Oh my god. Okay, so the the background of it, and I presume most people listening to the podcast already are aware of what the, what the background to this is. But so the background is that Osman Faruqi is suing Latham for defamation because Latham accused him of basically giving support for terrorists and being an anti-white racist. And Latham's evidence of uh, anti-white racism, in his defence, uh, sh- it's schedules of huge numbers of Faruqi's tweets, which he thinks demonstrate uh, anti-white racism. And they're things like mocking white people for being drunken idiots at the Melbourne Cup, or it, they're just silly observations, and they're not racism. Latham has included 164 tweets, things like Faruqi tweeting, White people keep saying to me, stop making everything about race. Mate, I'd love to, but it's you guys who've made racism a thing we have to live with, as evidenced by that study, among many other things. At at best, they refer to white people as a group, which is what delicate right-wing white people assume is racism. Calling people bad names is racism. They've been in trouble for that. Therefore, he's being racist. He He should be smacked over the wrist, completely ignoring the structural and deeply embedded nature of racism. Uh, in this country and across the world. He tweeted, Imagine the Melbourne Cup, but no horses, just white people wearing dumb clothes and getting drunk in a park. Still boring, but less cruel. The owner of my favourite Pakistani restaurant in Sydney always reminds me what food on the menu not to order because it's, quote, for white people. It's not fair that I get bullied for my name when white people called Thornton McCamish exist in this country. And anyway, it's just like, they're just silly things like that. Labradors are to dogs what straight white dudes are to politics. Boring, too common, entitled. Uh, to which the judge says, this tweet may well have been offensive to owners of Labradors, <laughs> perhaps even Labradors themselves. Some readers may well have considered that it was fairly... Cr- yes, it hardly constitutes vilification. Exactly, it doesn't. Latham pulled out this tweet. Judicial Review, rich, old, white, male, Sydney University graduates looking out for themselves. What a joke of a system. This is the judge. 
It is again difficult to fully appreciate the meaning of this tweet given that it's taken out of context. It's not entirely clear what prompted the tweet or what system was being railed against by Mr. Faruqi. In any event, it is, is it seriously to be suggested that middle-aged white men who graduated from the University of Sydney constitute a vilified or demonised subclass in Australian society? Do people within that specific demographic feel threatened or vulnerable as a result of social media posts like, such as this? A number of those involved in the conduct of this piece of litigation might be thought to be well-placed to answer those rhetorical questions. Uh, the judge himself is a Sydney Uni graduate. Though the answer is, in any event, obvious. <laughs> <laughs> More pointedly, could it seriously be suggested that social media posts, posts such as this are likely to encourage or facilitate anyone caking up their cudgels against middle-aged white male university graduates, let alone incite terrorist acts by Islamic terrorists against the white population generally? Now, so what the, the Latham's defence is, he's trying to say that any time that Faruqi is critical of white people, therefore he is leading to the through the, through the, some kind of weird osmosis where he raises, like... Oh, let me read you the op- opening, the, the first line of the judgment from Whitney J. There's so much delightful stuff to read in this judgment. I could read the whole thing. Well, it's, like, it's really worth fighting. I probably haven't read it. But, so the, the list of things that he's about to list are what Latham is trying to say, a tweet that mocks white people at the, at the Melbourne Cup leads to oppression, hatred of white people, and therefore Islamic terrorism. It's that asinine, uh, and which is why, of course, so much of his defence was struck out that it became pointless keeping the remaining bits. So the whole thing got struck out, and Latham's got 28 days to file a new one. Hopefully less shit than the previous one. But so, yeah, Whitney starts off with, What does the martyrdom of Christians in the Roman Empire between the reign of the Emperor Nero Claudius Caesar Augustus Germanicus and Emperor Flavius Valerius or Aurelius Constantinus Augustus have to do with a defamation action commenced in Australia in 2017? How could the persecution of ethno-religious Huguenots in the French kingdom during the French wars of religion of the 16th century be said to rationally affect the assessment of the probability of a fact in issue in a modern-day defamation action in which the defamatory imputations are said to be that the applicant knowingly assists terrorist fanatics who want to kill innocent people in Australia, or condones the murder of innocent people by Islamic terrorists, or encourages and facilitates terrorism. Could the fact of the segregation and ill-treatment of ethnic Negro people under the doctrine of apartheid in South Africa between 1948 and 1991... Yeah, Latham was seriously trying to use apartheid to demonstrate why white people are oppressed and, and this is causing terrorism. Oh, the longest bows. Like, it is fucking incredible. That, like, And you can just imagine Mark Latham frothing in his library late one night over every little instance that he's dug up through history where some white person has had wrong done to them. Oh, by the way, by the way, the previous line, the one that ends with, could, how could any of these things be said to rationally affect the assessment of probability of fact and all that stuff, um, or that, that somehow that, it, that, that he encourages or facilitates terrorism? At the end of that, he's in a terror bang, a question mark, exclamation mark, like in a, in a judgment. There's this, he ends it with a... Yes. <laughs> That's got to have been such a considered bit of punctuation. I cannot imagine a judge casually throwing around modern uh, punctuation inventions like the interrobang casually. It's hard to just type in there. You can't just like go exclamation mark, question mark and have it appear. Like you've got to actually try to get it in there. Yeah, you've got to go special characters. Like. Exactly. And he's like, yeah, could the fact of the segregation and ill-treatment of ethnic Negro people under the doctrine of apartheid in South Africa between 1948 and 1991 reasonably be said to be relevant to the, to the defences of justification, contextual truth, qualified privilege, honest opinion and fair comment pleaded by the respondent in that defamation action? These and other equally beguiling questions are raised by the interlocutory applications filed by the parties in this matter. Yes. So Latham's defence is 76 pages in length, includes nine schedules. A large part of his defence also seems to be... So it's not just the first part of it is, hey, look, 
anti-white stuff leads to terrorism. And he fails to find any way of demonstrating that the terrorism had anything to do with white people anyway. Whatever the causes of, of the... He was trying to say that the Lint Cafe t- um, siege was because of hatred of white people. But he's got no evidence that it was particularly white people that they were fighting against. Like, he, the, what the judge is pointing out is you can't even... How would... How would that trial even run? What kind of experts is he going to? Does he want to bring in experts on Huguenots in the French kingdom during the French Wars of Religion in the 16th century to draw some power? Like, is he going to bring all of his claims about these historical things? I just think he's pulled out of a book. They're not expert evidence that could be cross-examined. How would you even? These are all things that are you know historical debates. How on earth is a court doing a defamation action? Go to thrash that out. Like, just, what does Lathan think a court is? I cannot begin to imagine what he actually thought would happen with any of this, except for the fact that the judge reading his submission would be so wowed by his massive intellect, his great throbbing member of of intelligence, uh, that the the judge would immediately rule in Latham's favour. Like that's the only line of thought that I can imagine seeing. Even just seeing a list of the references that he made, the ridiculous and self-aggrandizing comparisons he made to persecuted people in history, th- there's there's no sense I, that he ever thought there would be an argument around this, that this would all be so persuasive and under the weight of history, it would be clear that that Osman Faruqi had defamed and defamed white people and incited terrorism by making jokes about the Melbourne Cup. The other part of it is how much of his defense is... But Osman Faruqi said mean stuff about me. Yes. How is that a, a, a... That isn't a defense. That's got nothing to do... Like, he hasn't taken it on board, though. After that judgment came down, he tweeted, Last year, I criticized a tweet by Osman Faruqi attacking white-skinned people. Today, Wigney said, But really, what does one expect from Twitter or social media generally? Deep, insightful analysis? What sort of legal analysis is this? The Wigney judgment will be appealed. And... This is not an original joke. Like, this is from something else originally. It was actually about uh, somebody in America originally. But Jazz Hogblow at Jehovah's Findom uh, on Twitter responded to the Mark Latham thing with this beautiful tweet. And I, look, I, he concedes that this is not his original joke. But for a libertarian, you sure love being publicly owned. <laughs> God, Latham doesn't get it. But that makes sense because if you are genuinely of the opinion that any kind of criticism of white people who are the privileged group in our society is just like discrimination against people who are marginalised in our society. If you cannot see the difference of those things, then you have such a massive blind spot. No wonder. like, There's nothing in a judgment pointing out why your argument is silly that is going to hit you. You're just going to be like, you're going to find a word, like the bit where he's like, well, what what did you expect out of Twitter? Like it's only 140 characters. It was not like Faruqi could do go into great detail in each of these tweets. And you're going to go, ha, what kind of legal analysis is that? That's, a, that's not a basis for, uh, for, for, for something being not being defamatory. But nothing in there. He's just completely missed the point. And the point is he cannot draw that link. It, yeah. He's, on, he's in an entirely different courtroom in his mind. Like he, and, and this is probably a larger problem with Mark Latham is the parallel universe in which he operates where he is somehow oppressed and having to you know, appear on Facebook live videos instead of his former newspaper column and TV job is a form of oppression because he used to be big and successful and he should have all of this attention. That to him is the worst possible outcome. He can't imagine what it's like to be a brown man in Australia. No. And and that's why I don't... I'd, so Faruqi had asked for the matter to be struck out and him not be given leave to re, 
re-put a defence, which means that Fruki would go through, like, the trial would then happen without there being a defence and he would presumably win it. And they didn't agree with that uh, and they gave him an opportunity to refile it. But what Fruki was saying is, look, the, the defence is so deficient. And, and the way that, the, what, what the lawyers refer to it as is, is embarrassing. That's a chilling thing to have said in a, in a courtroom, that, that what you've argued, it's not just wrong, it's not just not persuasive, it's embarrassing. You're embarrassing us all. You're embarrassing yourself, you're embarrassing us having to listen to it. It's an embarrassment. You're embarrassing the judicial system by presenting this in a court and thinking it's an appropriate action. And, and he had lawyers doing it too. Like he's got that silk, the QC who did the bloody QUT students and I don't know, any crank right wing thing. It's the same case. I've got his name. Uh, oh, it's at the top. Well, I'll stop to the top and tell you who it is in a minute. But yeah, it's the same. It's the same guy. But that, I mean, the silk should have been embarrassed being connected to this ridiculous defense. The judges said, look, I understand why, given this particular defense and how much, how bad it is and what I've just had to point out, I understand uh, the argument that, that Fruki doesn't want to be put to the trouble and expense of having to do it again and for the delays, because obviously he's seeking a judgment. He's letting it do it because Latham hasn't previously amended his defense and it's the first mm. strikeout application. And he says very clearly to Latham, Perhaps more significantly, while large parts of the defence have or will be struck out, the prospect or possibility that Mr Latham will be able to properly replead some of the substantive defences cannot be entirely excluded. It can also be expected that if Mr Latham takes up the opportunity to replead his defence, he will pay heed to the reasons why parts of his existing defence have been struck out. It can be expected that he will not make the same mistakes twice and that his repleted defence will be clear, concise, unambiguous and only raise defences that are reasonably arguable and appropriate having regard to the nature of the case. He will, in other words, ensure that his repleted defence complies with the rules and the overarching purpose identified in Section 37M of the Federal Court Act. If it does not, and parts of it are again struck out, he should not expect that he will necessarily be given another opportunity. He has been ordered to pay Fruki's costs, although I don't think it's on an indemnity basis, which means that Fruki will still be out of pocket. But yes, based on his tweets, it looks suspiciously like Latham will not be grasping what the judge was very clearly saying to him in that last paragraph. Oh, no. Oh, no. Mark Latham is not someone who takes feedback on board. What he'll file is something trying... He'll be like, oh, I didn't have enough detail about how white race, anti-white racism leads to terrorism. Well, here are a bunch of quotes from Islamic State saying they hate white people. And here is, here is an Islamic State supporter saying that he's been raised to hate white people or something. And here he is watching the... A having said that he watched the ABC. And here is Osman Faruqi appearing on the ABC. Therefore, here is the link. He, he will double down and it will become even more... St Although he does have lawyers. Like, maybe Latham... I don't think Latham's paying them. I'd be surprised if he's paying them. I suspect they're doing it pro bono because it's a political thing for them. Mm -hmm. So I suspect what happened is Latham drew his own, did his own defence and then the, the silk just appeared to argue it. But hopefully the silk has pointed out to him what the judge is trying to say... Right. And even though Latham still had to tweet to save face with the whole, oh, this is all bullshit, I'll, I'll appeal it. Hopefully he'll be getting actual advice from lawyers telling him, that's really dumb. I don't know. I, I kind of would love to see him just go full Latham. Like I couldn't think of an appropriate word, and I feel like his name is a sufficient synonym for going that far off the deep end into the parallel universe in which he <laughs> exists. And just bring something that is even more absurd like just go full down the avenue of like galactic wars and races like start quoting from x-men comics or something like that where he's so disconnected from reality that the judge just can't 
can't file a, I can't respond. Just drops the book and walks out of the court. No, no, he, he won't do that. Latham genuinely thinks that his bonkers racism uh, fits in a uh, historical context, and that he's more knowledgeable than the. I mean, all of these alt right people think they that that we're all cucks and idiots and don't understand what's really happening. Latham will throw more of what he thinks is history back. He, w- I don't think he'll have grasped the point that you can't have a historical debate like that in court. Like, no. How would you do it? Academics disagree on historical events and interpretations. How would a defamation court be equipped to thrash out an argument about what is the correct historical interpretation of something? But I don't think Latham grasps that because I don't think he really grasps that you know, the concept that history is even arguable like i think he's got you know no no this is what happened this is what it was i read it in a book therefore it's right i think he'll double down with even more bonkers historical links he'll try and find something that's more specifically about white people being oppressed probably maybe now we'll hear about the oppressed white south african farmers in the next version oh oh now that would be a very popular defense with the alan joneses as well they live in these people live in a bubble it's i would like to say i still find it galling that we are paying a very significant parliamentary superannuation for Mark Latham because, remember, he and John Howard voted to slash it for everyone after them. After them. Yeah, they closed the door behind them. Yeah, so he's still being paid by us, the taxpayers, a very generous parliamentary pension. Uh, And I would like to have that going to Osmond Fruki for the rest of Latham's life. That would be be wonderful to, to imagine Mark Latham having to, like, even just him... Opening his banking app to arrange that, like, repeat direct debit to pay him all the time. I would, yeah. I, th- I think I would pay money for that footage. And of course, we, know, we all know what it is. Like, it's not like, you know, you know, often with defamation or court actions, it's very difficult to get money out of people because you don't necessarily know what they're earning. It's easy for people to hide it. Latham can't hide his parliamentary pension. We all know what it is. Mm. Like, it's public record. It is. Mm. Mm. That's good. Anyway. <sighs> That's certainly a lot happier than than the horrible Morrison stuff. But at least Morrison is gradually exposing himself for who he is. Uh, and he can't possibly be winning votes from young people by, A, telling them that it's they're all, they're all too greedy. You're, you're young people in your, your rented properties, paying a fortune, getting inspected every six months, kicked out, having to move uh, because you've got no housing security or mm. lower wages than anybody else's, you know, any other generation before you. You, know, you, you greedy bastards. I mean, what? We we have to go and own all the properties and rent them out to you, so you even have a place to live. <laughs> yeah, I feel like that's not winning. That won't be winning people. Um, it's not persuasive. I feel like the people he's appealing to. Well, I mean, he's, he's pitching at the liberal base with all the anti-trans stuff. Yes, absolutely. I don't think that's winning new votes. I don't think that's going to be pulling him back. So I'm I'm hopeful. I mean, I still think we need to take him seriously because the idea of God, if if he got back in, the harm he would do immediately, mm. would be devastating. But. I mean, that's a good sign. And Dutton and the au pair thing is getting worse for him. I'm just staggered that in both the Dutton and the and the Guy case, their defences are, oh, in Dutton's case, it's, I've got all this information that, that is really incriminating, but I'm not going to show it. And, and it, look, if you keep pushing me, I'll show it. And in Guy's case, it's, you had all this information that's incriminating on me, but look at this thing that came out along with it. Let's focus on that instead. They're, they're interesting defences, that's what I'm saying. Mm, oh, it's look. At least they're entertaining. I'll give them that. And it's always nice to see people like Dutton on the ropes, trying to, try, well, like I was going to say, trying to maintain the poker face. But he has no expression in his face. That particular 
uh, melting wax figure doesn't really function like that. Uh, but it is funny to see him. I was going to say sweat, and that's, that's not true either. He doesn't sweat. That's just melting wax. I like to see him under pressure, is what I'm saying. Yeah, and I think I think he is genuinely... I mean, he's, he's making a whole lot of threats at Roman Quadrilly today. It's weird when, when uh, you know, a, a twisted villain um, like Quadrilly flips because, you know, they've had a falling out with their former boss. And because Quadrilly did a bunch of hideous things as commissioner for Border Force. Like, he's a terrible person. And part of the reason why he's out is because... He, anyway, he, there, are, there are a number of issues. Uh, and, and, and as Dutton says, he's potentially facing criminal charges. Like... Quadrilic is not a good person. No. But the fact that he's out there revealing the other stuff that he did when he was not a good person but working for Dutton is, is nice. Like, it's nice, nice when they turn on each, on each other. Yeah, so. It's, it's nice when Cohen turns on Trump. It's nice. Th- these things are important. And it doesn't mean we have to like them, but it's, you know, good to see the villains fighting amongst themselves. Yes, yeah, it gives us some comfort. I am scared about what, what Morrison's doing next. I think, I think it's very weird that he's decided to go hard on... Like attacking trans people, given that one of the like everybody who hates trans people knows that Morrison is a happy clapper who couldn't who didn't vote for marriage equality. So if you're one of those people, he's already got one up on Shorten. If you if if your big thing is enforcing religious fundamentalist views of sexuality on people, Morrison's got your vote. So it's weird for him when he's in the trying to get people who aren't in that camp who don't know him to think positively of him and, and to sort of mellow his image a bit to start off with that it's, it's like it's, it feels like a weird tone-deaf mood move to me not i mean apart from the cruelty of it and how monstrous it is just from a political standpoint it seems like an odd thing for him to do I, i'm not sure i can understand their motivations anymore it can't be winning in votes like I, I mean generally i understand the idea of attacking trans people for, for their their side of politics because there are fewer trans people than there are um gay and lesbian people and people don't know them mm. We're a, we're a softer target, sadly. Well, yeah, if, and for people who've grasped the idea that, that people of the same sex could be attracted to each other, the idea of changing genders feels threatening for people because it's a fundamental part of their identity. Mm. So it's, it's a thing that you can get cis people to be to freak out at a more at a, at a core because they don't know any of the people in question. They don't well, they don't think they know any trans people, and numerically there are fewer trans people, so. Probably not. Did you see the thing in Savage was reporting this week? The um, they did a study in Canada, and it was like I don't know, twelve percent of people were willing to twelve percent of cis people were willing to date a trans person, which is fairly low. But as Savage was pointing out, that's still substantially more than the number of people who date a uh, cis people who date a gay person, it is <laughs> a, it, it, and it is a lot bigger than the number of trans people. So, like, yes, you know, there's not twelve percent of the population that's trans. That we know of. But, I mean, part of, that's the whole thing like where they say what percentage is gay. They don't... People under-report, too. So Yeah, that, that's a problem with anything like this. And then there's also just the fact that 12% of the population said they would date a trans person. means that 88% of people said they wouldn't, which is kind of horrifying for me. And it's only in a, an abstract sense, too. It's like, you know, it's saying, would you be open to it? So it means like 88% of people were like, no, I would not be open to it. Yeah, well, that's right. That's it. I try to not let it dismay me. <laughs> but, but then again, like if you are, you know, if you're asking straight people what percentage of them would date a person of the same gender, I imagine the percentage would be zero because they're straight. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. I, I think the bigger the bigger fear for me is that it, these sort of studies do tend to rely on a very uh, extreme image of what tra- it means to be trans uh, and people's preconceptions when they feed into this sort of stuff. That there's no like 
here is a range of what trans experiences might be, you know, because it is in this pure, uh, purely abstract thing. People are allowed to fill in whatever they think of trans is. And at this point, trans has, in most people's minds, a negative connotation that it doesn't deserve. Uh, and so they operate out of fear. And then these numbers go around and everyone's like, oh, well, 88% of people agree with me. I'm justified in being afraid of these people. Yeah. I don't. I, I think fundamentally a huge part of the problem is that people don't know many trans people. No. So they don't. They they don't see trans people as human beings. I mean, talking about trans person that people do know, Chelsea Manning, the fact that the government wouldn't give her a visa to come and speak in Australia, and so she's now had to do it by video link. I mean, that's that's appalling. How, that, this people are like oh she she spent time in prison. Well, but so did freaking nelson mandela like this is you might the idea that that somebody who's spent time in prison because of, of a political bloody decision like she revealed something we needed to know yeah who was a, a political prisoner quite literally yeah i mean and her unfortunately um obama didn't pardon her he just commuted her sentence he should have pardoned her he should have yes the idea she spent any time in prison is outrageous like she leaked material that we should have had access to that was important for us to know like the have you, did you ever you did watch the collateral murder video when it came out? Uh, I did not. No. Also, the, one of the the big thing that she leaked was this video, which shows it's it's footage from a I think it's from a helicopter, and they are above a city in I can't remember where it is. It's in the Middle East somewhere now, and they shoot up a bunch of people in a in a crowd because they've decided that one of them might be a target. They're not really very sure. They shoot them down from like and it just the vo- It's just cold. One of those people is also a journalist. Mm. And then an ambulance arrives and people run up to try and help and they shoot them too. And it's just the most... If you look up collateral murder, the collateral murder video, which is what Chelsea... One of the most important things that Chelsea leaked. It's horrific. Mm. And bloody oath it should have been exposed. But the Americans don't have any protections for whistleblowers any more than we do. No. I really think it's one of the fundamental things we should be fighting for is better whistleblower protections. Because if we don't have proper whistleblower protections then we don't find out the shit that the powerful are doing, which by definition is the stuff that we, like we would, the fact that they have to hide it from us is a a clear indication that it's something that we want to know about and we should know about, but we don't, neither big party in Australia is pushing for better whistleblower protections. They both vote to make uh, the punishments for whistleblowers tougher. And the rest of us should be really worried about that and pissed off about that. Yeah, it it, it is dismaying that it's harder and harder for people to reveal the things that we need to know that are being kept from us because it shines a bad light on the way that we're uh, our government uh, and other governments are behaving in the world I'm, I'm lost for words and in the same way as whistleblower protections are vital for democracy for us to know what's actually going on there's a similar debate going on in victoria the victorian parliament tonight when we're recording this we're recording this on thursday night on the renter bill and one of the things that's going to fix in that that, that bill fixes is uh, no reason evictions. And like you need to have whistleblower protection so that we so that that our democracy actually functions, we actually have that information that we need that so it gives effect to all of the other parts of how our democracy is supposed to work. Getting rid of no reason evictions is one of the things that's fundamental to make rental law work at all because as long as you have uh, no reason evictions in the legislation, Basically, it means that no renter has any actual protections at all because a landlord can just give them notice. You take them to the tribunal, you win, and they kick you out. That's it. It doesn't. It doesn't matter. So one of the things they're fighting about tonight yeah. is is getting rid of those. Um, the 
coverage from this afternoon indicated that the sticking point for some of the crossbenchers, because it's already gone through the lower house, and the Libs are trying to just drag it off so that it doesn't get done before the election, because there's only a few more sitting days. But one, apparently the sticking point at the moment for some of the crossbenchers from like the Shooters Party and, and random right-wing middle, you know, ones you haven't heard of uh, is the idea that uh, it protects people, people's right to have pets. And that's apparently a step too far because what if I don't want animals damaging my rental property? Well, then don't invest in real estate. Go and invest in something that doesn't require you to have bizarre levels of control over, over tenants' ordinary lives. You know, invest in something that doesn't have human beings. Not, not to mention that, that this hypothetical damage that might be caused by a pet, like, let's acknowledge that pets are not the only things that can cause damage. <laughs> Fathers of small children represent. <laughs> but also that's what the bond is for. The bond is there as a protection for the landlord to ensure that the property will be uh, returned in its usual state. If not, there is this financial penalty, yeah. penalty and that money can be used to recover that. Oh, and Fiona Patton was like, supportive of the bill, but she was like, oh, you know, you know I, what if I'm allergic to animals and I don't really, you know, want, and, and then there's an animal in the house and I can't just move back in. They make you fumigate the bloody house when you move out anyway. That happens. There are protections for landlords anyway. Yeah. Um, landlords are thick with protections. There's no protections for renters. That's that's the issue. Is It's the same as the Lacent thing. It's this very slight shift in the balance of power that makes these very powerful people feel like they're being attacked and all of my rights are being taken away when merely I have 98% of the rights now. Yeah. Oh, there, there was a um, story on Mama this week about a mother, mother, a single mother who's trying to get a rental property in Sydney and they just... As soon as they realise she's a single mother, they just re-advertise the property and don't progress her application. Yes, I, I saw this. Like, there are so many ways in which landlords can discriminate against you at the moment, and pets is certainly one of them. If you have pets, you basically need to lie because if you tell a landlord that you have pets, even if, they're, even if you're lucky enough to get a landlord that actually doesn't mind you having pets, it's still going to go on the record. So if you ever need to go to another house and they don't have pets, they won't let you have pets, what are you supposed to do? Just release them? What are you supposed to do? But once you've had pets, then there's a record that you have pets and they'll just assume you have pets. Like, it's bonkers. And I remember the real estate industry boasting in an article in, I don't know, Domain or something, in one of the Fairfax papers, I think, about how, oh, they know if you've got animals. When they come in and do their six-monthly inspections, which is, again, insane, six-monthly inspections are bonkers. Mm. How... Why should a stranger get to go through your house every six months? That's ridiculous. And the only reason why they want it now is because it's become something that real estate agents do as part of their fees to charge landlords. And they'd like, it's a job for them to do that they can charge money for. And if it was taken away, not like if they had, I don't think landlords care. They just do it because, well, that's part of the, when you're a landlord now, like it's, just really intrusive on the t- on the tenants, and it's just the only kind of landlords who really want to do it are really bad landlords. Yeah. Uh, anyway, I've gone down so many tangents now, but yeah, <laughs> I, I would have thought that the, fundamentally the rule needs to there. There are so many places further that I'd want this legislation to go. This legislation that feels like a massive shift in favour of tenants, which it is, but it's only back towards the centre. It's not a full set of protections. I don't think that it should be lawful for landlords or real estate agents to ask any questions of you when you're applying for a house beyond can you give evidence that you've been paying rent where you currently are and successfully uh, or can you give evidence that your income is enough to cover the rent on this place. That's it. They shouldn't be able to ask about your family situation. They shouldn't be able to ask about your um, pets. They shouldn't be able to ask about your children. They shouldn't be able to ask about your marital situation. 
Yeah. All of those are basic grounds which they can then use. That's information they can then use to discriminate against you. It shouldn't be lawful for them to ask. Then they can't discriminate. Yeah. What, what's the problem with bl- blind rental applications? You don't need to like the people who are living in your house. You're not living with them. <laughs> they are living in a separate place to you. you. There is no reason to not have blind applications and hit those basic criteria and let nothing else enter in there because you've I can assume with some confidence that it's not just single mothers who are getting overlooked in these cases. There are people with foreign-sounding names whose applications probably get dropped in the bin pretty quickly just on that basis alone. Yeah, there are so many places further that these protections need to go. Hell, I'd, mm. I'd be adding a... I don't know if you've heard this one, but I, I, given that there are still, even if you get rid of no reason evictions, there are still uh, bases on which landlords can reoccupy a home. Which basically means that as long as you are stuck renting, you have no security in your home at all. Like at any moment, you get a letter from the landlord that says, get out. Even if even if it's not a no reason one, it could be, we're going to move in or we're going to sell it or whatever. Mm. So I would, I would suggest, given how bloody intrusive that is, I would suggest that the law should be, if you are giving a tenant notice and they have to leave, you have to return their bond. Because if you're, if you're a tenant and you have to leave, you have to keep paying rent where you are. Uh, until the time's out, you have to find the money for a bond in the new place because you don't get your old bond back until after you've left. Yes. You have to find for the new place four to six weeks new uh, rent and you have to find the money for removalists. Mm. So if a landlord kicks somebody out for any reason other than serious damage or they're not paying their rent, then they should have to pay reasonable costs for removalists. They should have to release the bond and they should have to give enough notice that a person can find the get the rent together without having sort of to find a double lot of rent for the period in the meantime. Hmm. And if you said suggested that, can you imagine the conservative forces in the in in politics and in the media saying, "How what an outrageous impost on landlords!" As if it wasn't a an impost that's currently being borne by tenants. Like they're like, "We should be able to do this to you, and you should have to find that money." you poor people who are stuck renting. But to dare ask, say that if landlords want to exercise this power, they should have to pay it, that's outrageous. No, it bloody isn't. <laughs> if you want to have that power, then the, you're, the people who are stuck living in the homes, stuck renting forever, mm. shouldn't be the ones paying for your powers to do what you like with real estate. Anyway, I'd be doing that. I would also be getting rid of the um, mid-rental inspections or at least like no more than once every two years or something, unless there's actual grounds to think, you know, we've, we've had a complaint from the council that the house is on fire or, you know, <laughs> like some, if there's some actual grounds to do an inspection, fine. But the bit where they get to go through your house and be like, mm, mm, I don't think that the uh, stove is clean enough. Fuck off. I'll clean it when I move out. Like, what the hell is that? Hmm. Like the old, you know, obnoxious sexist ads they used to have with a mother-in-law coming through during, you know, you know, the old offensive, you know, stereotypical running a finger through the through the dust or whatever thing. You know, the white glove. Weird. No, nobody would endure that. Nobody who owns a house would endure a stranger coming through their house every few months just to make sure that it was, you know, being kept in a decent enough nick. I'm sorry, we're from the government. We're going through all of our houses now. you know, we're, we're responsible for making sure that houses are safe. So every six months, we're going to go through houses of people who even own their own homes and just make sure that, you know, you're keeping things clean. Nobody would put up with that. Hmm. Make sure the walls are nice and neat and that you've got your laundry put away and all of those things. Yeah. But apparently for the rest of us who are stuck renting, that's just a thing we should have to put up with. Fuck off. It's, a, it's an indignity that is apparently part of the deal of paying someone a great deal of money to use their property. Yeah. <laughs> That'll definitely make it easier to pass the next time it goes through. So, hey, 
if you guys can't pass this bill tonight, I've got some ideas for making it better. Hmm. Anyway, thank you, Ginger, for helping me do a quick episode this week. I think we've just been on about, about half an <laughs> this hour. Is, this is how time is represented. Oh, there's a one in front of that half an hour, isn't there? That one represents an hour and half. Uh, mm. Damn it, this was not a half hour episode. It's not quick. <clears throat> no. Okay, well, th- thank you for joining me again. Enjoyed the chat. Oh, good. Always a pleasure. Well, this uh, not at all dumped to fire country that we're living in all right well hopefully by the time uh you hear this tomorrow there'll be great news that the victorian parliament at least was able to pass this without just shafting renters and and forcing them to abandon their pets if they move into a house otherwise uh, i guess we'll be fired up about it next week so thank you ginger and thank you to all of our patreon subscribers uh you are of course how the podcast keeps going and also how it is that i managed to endure trying to find audio by listening to alan jones and scott morrison Thank you to Alex Lum for the artwork. Thank you, Robin Gray, for the music. And we'll see you all next week. See you, Ginger. Farewell. <laughs>